0: A couple of months ago, two of the post reporters in Ukraine were driving into Chernigiv. Watch out for
1: this,
0: whatever it is. That's Kostya Hudov and Siobhan O'Grady. Just days earlier, this road that they were on had been heavily shelled, and several people had been killed. This was back in April, when the international media had not been able to get into Chernihiv for many weeks, so the world didn't know what had happened there yet. Russia had pulled back from the city, and finally it seemed possible for the Post team
1: to go. Oh my God. Was that a house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Oh Uh, my God. This is really bad. Every house is just destroyed. I mean, it's just, pi- things are just piles of rubble. These are like, some uh, of these can, look like can, pretty you can, nice. You can film it. It's, it's
2: okay. To yeah.
1: It. My God, look at this one.
0: This reporting trip was also personal for Kostia. Chernigiv is his hometown. His parents were still there, and he needed to get them out.
1: <gasps>
2: this is the way
0: to my look. parents.
1: That must be a Ukrainian position. That's like a giant tank or something.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 6th. In Ukraine, the front lines have moved to the east and it is not going well for Ukrainian forces. It seems like there's been a turning point, and Russia is now in control of key cities there. The optimism from the spring, when Russian forces were defeated in Kyiv, that has started to fade. Russian artillery has been hammering the east. Cities and towns have been totally leveled, and people are drawing comparisons with the devastation after World War I. As we've seen the war in Ukraine unfold over the last few months, Post reporters have been on the ground, like so many others, risking their lives to keep us informed about what is happening on the front lines. But we don't always hear as much about the people alongside foreign correspondents, local journalists like Kostia, who are key to the reporting and access that international journalists are able to get. And in conflict zones where you're dealing with matters of life and death, these relationships between reporters are essential. Today, we're taking you to one of the places in northern Ukraine that has been more or less abandoned by the Russians. We'll see what's left behind after a siege, and we'll explore what it's like to cover war in your own hometown.
1: Kind of strangely and ominously enough, Kostya and I actually met at a funeral. And it was one of the first service members who was killed after the escalation in the conflict in the East. And his body was brought back to Kiev. And then we just sort of got thrown in to the war together when Russia invaded several days later.
0: And and what is it like having someone like Siobhan come in from the outside in this moment and kind of partnering with her? I mean, in some ways, it seems like a kind of sacred relationship.
2: It's true, actually. In this job, it's very important. How do you feel next to each other? If you're comfortable working with sense of humor, even because sometimes you're going through such awful situation that even dark humor helps you to go through this.
0: Can I ask, before the war broke out, especially you, Kostya, were you expecting it to happen? Did you really think that this was going to escalate into a war?
2: <laughs> I think it's like common mistake by all the Ukrainians that we, until the very last minute, couldn't believe that and we didn't believe that. And most of ours were not really prepared. Like, yeah, we packed our emergency backpacks. Like, I think the mistake we made, we, ex- we were expecting the escalation in the east whereas Russia started to invade from all the possible borders, including Belarus. But frankly, you cannot get ready to any war in your life. That's just impossible because it's like totally different level from what you expect.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about what that day was like, February 24th, when Russia, I guess, officially invaded?
2: Well, I woke up to, I think it was my friend, Marta. She was standing in the window and she said, I, I see the explosions just in front of us. Uh, it started. Uh, I just dropped the phone, called my family, check on them, uh, called my mom and dad, the same situation in their town, Chernygiv, grabbed my dog and grabbed dog's food and uh, just got in my car. And um, I still remember that moment when everyone was driving outside of the city. And I probably was one car in a line driving to the city center like there was no traffic towards city center we arrived to the hotel, checked in weirdly enough and we went to cover through the whole day, uh, Kiev
0: Once the invasion began, Kostya and Shivan were spending every day finding victims and covering strikes on Kyiv. They spent an evening in the basement of a hospital that had been turned into a maternity ward. They watched people flee their homes. They saw elderly people literally being carried in old bedsheets towards safety. And at the same time, Kostya was worried about his own family. They were still in Chernigiv, the city that had become a significant target for Russia. Chernigiv has about 300,000 people. It's right by Belarus, a Russian ally. And it's close enough to Kiev that Kostya used to be able to pop home to visit his parents. But when the war broke out, everything came to a halt, including regular communications with his family.
2: It's so weird because uh, a Sunday before the invasion, we had this chat with my mom Mom, listen, maybe I should bring you to Kiev. And she was like, "Mm, let's maybe wait for another week and just give it another week. And you're going to grab us next weekend. And that was impossible. What we did, we created this chat on Telegram. And I asked any single member of my family to update the status every two hours at least. Basically, the situation was getting worse every day. There was no place to charge your phone. If we had a chance to talk to them, it was 15, 30 seconds, not every day. And we were checking just the most important. Are you okay? Both. Do you have water and do you have food? And where do you sleep? We didn't have any information. So we were just checking and they were not explaining what is going on in the city uh, because we didn't have time.
1: I just wanted to mention that around this time, we were talking about trying to give every day, not only because Kostya's family was there, but because it was a strategic city that the Russians were trying to take. And, you know, there was this siege happening of the city of Mariupol that everyone was talking about and kind of focused on, in part because it was such a horrific situation and in part because there were these very brave Associated Press journalists who were there who were documenting what was happening. But it started raising questions about what's happening in other cities where there aren't journalists and Chernigov was one of those cities where there it was just very little information was coming out. So after discussing with our editors, we decided to do a project that was basically Kostya found someone he knew, who he'd grown up with there, who had stayed and was working as a volunteer in the town doing humanitarian relief. And every day for a week this man would send updates to Kostya, these long emotional voice notes.
0: Привет.
1: Ну, короче, смотри, Saying there's no water, there's no food, there's no power, it's a humanitarian disaster. No, situation of principle And then he would be sending photos of buildings that had been bombed and the food deliveries they were doing and describing these horrific scenes. And some nights I would come into Kostya's hotel room and he would be playing the voice note on his speaker, listening to it, coming in and seeing Kostya's reaction and the way that you were having to hear this news about your hometown and try to stay professional and translate it. For me, you know, it was very emotional sometimes just to every day hear someone on the ground there saying, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. Because also when you talk to your parents, all they had time to say was, we're okay. And They also didn't want you to worry, right? So they're not giving you the same kinds of details that this guy who was acting as a source for the post was.
2: My story is not unique. Like, almost every single friend had something like that. Like, a friend of mine from Miami, her parents were under Russian occupation since day four. (laughs) Another friend, Mariupol, parents, and it's like, a very common story for my friends working like with Washington Post and dealing with um, my you know family was kind of emotionally draining and um, that was a moment when I realized um, you know chances of their survival where we didn't know basically how high they were And I think that that night I actually had a breakdown. (laughs) And um, and now I'm okay speaking about that, but it was very difficult uh, to accept it, to realize that you need a break. Like, emotionally, you need a break. You have to just switch off in any possible way, even for a bit. Working in these circumstances is obviously not just about being professional, but about being human
1: There were a few times where I tried to talk Kostia out of going because one day Kostia you just said to me like I think I'm just going to drive there and try to get my parents and if you want to come you can come and we can try to report But the emotion of you wanting to do something for your parents, I think was, you know, that was like the most overwhelming feeling of just you're here, you're in Kyiv, you're less than, you should be less than two hours away, you have a car, you can take them somewhere safe, but there's this huge obstacle, which is just the unknown of what are you going to find? And that was really a moment, I think, when that like obvious distinction between someone who's reporting on their own country and someone who's come in to report on another country just are having a very different experience. And we had a really long and honest conversation one night where I, th- I think we both cried. Um, and Kostya decided that he needed to just take a step back from working with us for a week or 10 days to just reset and get some time off because reporting on something so close was just starting to become really stressful.
0: So how did you all come to this decision to go to Chernigov?
1: So for weeks, there had been very little information coming out of Chernigiv. But what we saw as Russian troops began to withdraw from around Kiev and as they announced that they were also withdrawing from around Chernigiv was that there was total devastation in these areas around Kiev that we had not had access to. And a lot of reporters were going to those places and we were too, but we also wanted to know what is happening in places that have been totally inaccessible that are even further away. And so we started seriously talking about some reporting targets and what kind of trip can we take? What town would we go to if we could go to a town? And it made a lot of sense for us to go to Chernigiv. This road um, we'd heard was becoming safer to take. It was still dangerous, but, and there were some risks, but we decided that if we all went as a group together, then we could get in and out in one day, not stay overnight and get a very important firsthand account from the residents who had stayed behind during the Russian encirclement of the city and find out what exactly had happened there.
0: And also, presumably, this would give Kostya a chance to see his parents.
1: Yeah, which was kind of incredible how the stars just aligned because Kostya was in Lviv, but he decided without knowing that we were going to Chernigiv at all or being part of that planning, he decided he was ready to come back to work. And the day before he arrived was the same day that we had started planning this trip so when he got there we said we really wanted to have someone who was from that town going with us so everything ended up working out except that he still had to convince his parents if he was going to also try to bring them home with him he still had to make sure that they actually would agree to leave because for so many weeks they had refused to.
2: I remember jumping on the car, and I decided to call my parents actually on the way. So once we left Kyiv, I called my mom, and uh, like I said, listen, um, guess where I'm going. And she was like, I have no idea. I just told her, listen, I'm coming to Chernihiv and you should get ready. I'm going to pick you up. Uh, She actually laughed a little bit. This was the first time I I heard my mom laughing, not sincerely, but at least a bit in a long time.
0: What Kostya didn't know yet was everything that his parents had gone through. He knew that they'd left home, that their electricity was cut off, that they'd slept in a bunker at a school near their house. But he didn't realize yet just how bad things had gotten. After the break, what Kostia and Siobhan found inside of Chernigiv. We'll be right back. On the way into Chernigiv, Siobhan took out her phone she recorded this conversation with Kostya.
1: I just wanted to record, like, how you're feeling. Okay. So, how are you feeling?
2: Uh, <laughs> you're recording now? I am. Well, it's insane. I can't believe this. This is the most positive news since, actually, the start of the invasion. I didn't have many of them, so... Uh, f- and I just got back to Kiev from my little break in Lviv, and it's insane. I mean, I can't believe that I'm actually going to my to the town where I grew up, and which is destroyed. Like seventy percent of the city is destroyed, according to the mayor. And my parents been suffering for weeks. Uh, my mom was sick during this time, they were sleeping, sleeping, sorry, in shelter for nearly a month, I think. And I'm going to see the area I grew up and the city, um, it's, go- it's probably going to be very emotional because the city is, as I said, destroyed. Even though I know they were in shelter every night steel, there were strikes uh, so and some uh,
1: shelters have been hit like the yeah, opera house yeah, yeah. Where, like yeah. it's not it doesn't mean it's not 100% it's just better than nothing right so
2: i think the most challenging part for me still is because i can't believe i'm going to read my parents that uh, they suffered so much uh, mentally and physically for what like what was the reason uh they are alive, which is the most important. We need to let them go. But um, I, w- I wasn't sure that, that, that they could make it, to be honest.
1: You thought they would die?
2: At some point, uh, yeah, when the shilling was super heavy and uh, they were basically destroying the city, I, I thought that, yeah, they might not make it.
0: Kostya, tell me about the road into Chernigiv and what it was like actually driving in at this point during the war.
2: What actually hit me is the first is the tanks, burned tanks.
1: It just looks like a hurricane or like a a tornado.
2: Like a natural disaster.
1: It's Uh just crazy because like some of these, some of these houses are completely fine. But like just over there, they were yeah. all destroyed. It's like it's luck, yeah.
2: But just realizing how badly damaged was the city, it just unbelievable. It was I couldn't I couldn't believe my eyes that this is the city I remember. I was there just at the very end of uh, the year in December, and now it's like completely
1: destroyed. When we were driving through Costa, do you remember? There, were, there was one house that was really badly damaged and it had a sign out front and I, I can't read Cyrillic. So I was like, oh my God, that house looks so horrible. What does it say? And, and you just paused and said, it says for sale.
0: The Post team went to interview the mayor. His office had been damaged by a missile strike nearby. He told them that he thought it had been targeting him. The missile destroyed a theater in the center of town the same theater that Kostia had loved going to as a kid. And then Kostia and Javon split up. Javon kept on reporting. Kostia went to rescue his parents.
2: I entered my parents' apartment By knocking the door, there was no electricity, I couldn't ring. My mom opened the door and she started to cry. I cried a little bit too. And then something happened, which I didn't expect. She was like, do you want to eat? And I was actually starving. And she said, I cooked some borscht. (laughs) And just yesterday, I realized that she cooked borscht for me.
0: Can you just describe borscht for someone who's never had it? It's like soup, right? Or like, like stew?
2: It's something I would say in between stew and soup with beetroot. It's traditional, the most popular Ukrainian dish ever. So I realized that she cooked borscht for me. Like it was the same morning when I told her that I'm coming, she cooked some borscht and she cooked borscht for all the team because she expected all the Washington Post team coming to the place (laughs) and... It was very sweet. There, um, it, it's like the apartment was super cold. Like, I don't know, plus 10 Celsius or even less.
0: Yeah, I just Google that. It's at like 50 Fahrenheit. So that's really cold to be just in your apartment.
2: Yeah, it is. And they spent like 40 days in that conditions. And seeing them, like they both lost some weight and... um Obviously it was difficult for them even in this situation to say goodbye to their place without knowing if they're going to see it anymore because the, the possibility of uh, a right was still there.
0: As they packed up their bags and said goodbye to their home, Siobhan was across town witnessing a very different scene, a hospital treating war victims that had been shelled by Russian forces.
1: People were being treated there and then like windows blew out and they were having glass picked out of their faces after having been wounded the day before, standing in bread lines and things like that. I mean, the the doctors who'd been working there had just seen some of the worst things imaginable. And so the whole time that Kostya was getting his parents and having this reunion, I was thinking, you know, of course, Costa is the only person I know personally from this town. Like, this could have been his family. This could be anyone that he knew. And then after that, I went to the morgue behind the hospital and there was a refrigerator truck parked outside of the morgue and there were several bodies inside of people, including, you know, people Costa's parents' age who were not identified yet and who were just waiting for their families, for their kids to come and get them, except that they hadn't made it. And I think that just really hit me. Like, this could have been Kostia's parents. This could have been any normal person. These people had a family and a story. One of them had a passport sitting on his chest, like, that almost just seemed to say, you know, don't forget about me. Like, this is my name. This is who I am. Someone will come and get me and just seeing those scenes and then at the same time getting like a, a text from Kostia that was a selfie of him with his parents. It was like this extreme emotional overload for all of us, I think the whole team, but I could see, you know, when we all met up at the meeting place to hit the road, we all just threw our arms around Kostia's parents. Everyone just had to hug them and like feel them ourselves that like, these are, re- they're real, they're here. And just seeing the way that Kostia's entire body language and expression and voice changed, it was like you could physically see the burden that had been lifted off of him. And for all of us who had relied on him and worked with him for so many weeks, I think that was just such a special thing that after we witnessed so much devastation there that day to actually have like this one glimmer of hope.
0: What was it like once you'd left on the drive back, having your parents with you in the car?
1: So on the way to Kiev, they were
2: pretty calm and we didn't talk much because the, it was a difficult drive, let's say. Once we got to the city, they were surprised that there are lights on the street. And then when we were out of the car, I ran to the hotel restaurant, or which supposed to be a restaurant, but was like, I don't know, cafeteria. They were kind enough to warm up some food for them. My dad went to the shower and he stayed over half an hour there usually takes him three minutes the most (laughs) he was just enjoying the shower it was the first shower he took in 40 days Uh, then my mom did the same and i remember the moment when my mom was out of the shower she was in her sleeping gown lay down on the bed and she was like, I cannot imagine this is the sheets. I cannot imagine. I don't need to keep all this close to stay warm up at night. And I'm not sleeping on the shelter floor uh, for a change. And at that point, I realized how much did they go through.
1: And Kostya, you and your dad had a cigarette together outside and, and he kind of opened up to you a little bit in that conversation too, right?
2: Yeah, we we are, uh, my dad is the retired military officer, so we're not that close. I mean, he's not speaking much in general. So I started to smoke during war. Um, I will quit eventually. (laughs) 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 And uh, we, it was the first time when me and my dad shared a cigarette and He was very honest about how mom went through this um, invasion and uh, all this time that even though she was saying that kids, I'm okay, she wasn't. She was very afraid, uh, especially when um, they were attacking from air or like tanks and uh, shelling from all the possible direction, to be honest. And that was the first grown-up, Conversation with my dad, you know, in a way like smoking that cigarettes, speaking about mom, and I don't know how to explain it, but it just uh, was very emotional moment of you realizing how old you are and how old your dad is and what you've been through, mm. um, even through this very quick cigarette break. <laughs>
0: So, Kostya, I know that you just interviewed your mom a little bit about what her experiences were during that time that um, they were in Chernigiv and you weren't getting the whole story about what they were going through. Tell me a little bit about what you heard from her in your conversation now.
2: First of all, it's kind of weird to interview your mom. <laughs> It was a That was a strange thing, uh, but we tried to be professional. <laughs> I think she started to cry when I, we got to the point of what she felt when she opened the door and saw me. And she said, I hope I'm not going to cry now, she said that I was so happy to see you alive and to to be alive, to hug you. And for all these days, I didn't know if it's going to ever happen. (laughs) And um, um, that was difficult uh, part of the interview um, because, you know, you always think about your mom as just your mom and who is there, always for you. And then you end up being in this situation when, actually, I mean, during the interview, you realize that she's just a human with her own feelings. With And she, she is a strong woman, my mom, but during war, it doesn't matter. You, she was just a vulnerable woman in her late 60s. Uh, who was scared to be killed with the shilling or airstrike or another bomb they were dropping on the city? What shocked me the most is this fear and just, you know, basic human feelings of being afraid of not seeing your kids, not seeing your grandson, not making it to another day. And uh, I remember at the very end of the interview, I was like, if you're going to look back at these 40 days of hell, like, what would you think? And she was like, you have to live every day. You have to enjoy whatever you like, even if it's a flower in your garden, even if it's your sound of your, of the voice of your kid, like whatever, whatever makes you happy, just enjoy it because life is really too short and it might, I know now that it might end any day.
0: Thank you both so much for sharing this story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Siobhan O'Grady is a foreign correspondent for The Post. Kostya Hudov is a journalist in the Post Bureau in Kiev. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alexis Diao. It was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky, who also helped edit, along with Maggie Penman and Kevin Sullivan. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.